Oh, thanks. Um, we're going to take a journey in Scripture tonight. You can start in Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're going to go all over the place, though, so um, we'll start there. But um, I'm going to have all the Scriptures pre-prepared for you. And they've given me a toy. Men like toys. So they've given me something with power. And, um, and, and so I'll be able to show you, um, I'll be able to show you the, the scriptures we're going to use. Let me just say this. Thank you very much for having me for the weekend. Um, you truly would know, listen, if I didn't believe this, I just wouldn't say nothing. I, I'd just go on. But you truly have one of the great churches in the world. And you truly, um, I, I travel the world and there's so many places I have to work hard in. And, um, and, and I work hard here. I mean, we, we, we speak and we do a lot of different things, but it's not hard work. It's the difference between working hard and hard work. And, um, and, and you guys, the energy and the environment of this place should never be taken for granted. It is nourishing to the soul. And so, um, and I mean that. And so, and part of the reason for that is, uh, is your staff and, uh, and, and the fact that they maintain their walk with God the way they do. And yeah, and I would say that, that you have one of the great pastors in the world right here with Mike Connell. I'm telling you. Um, if you ever, since you've walked with him, you'd never want to walk without him, I can promise you. So uh, we're going to take a good journey tonight. Um, obviously, the resources are still there. Um, let me just tell you about a few that people were asking me about today. Um, some of that stuff I did on where the Bible came from and all this stuff, they were saying, you have anything back there on that? I have an entire series back there. It's four CDs long called Why Believe? And it talks about where we got the Bible from and why it makes sense. Okay, so if you're a thinker or if you just want to sort of uh, add some things to your arsenal in terms of why Christianity makes sense compared to the other um, stuff, you can, you can check that out. Also, um, we have a series back there called Navigating Tough Transitions. It's an older series, but really good. It talks about um, what do you do when you're in a season in your life where you're between assignments. And so you could pick that up. We also have a series back there called Imitations, and it's on, all on the Hebraic idea of discipleship the Hebraic idea of discipleship and um, becoming an imitator of God. So you could pick any of those things up and along with anything else you'd want. We got a whole thing on how the Jews do their money. Like I said this morning, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, it's all back there. And like I said, we try to use that to, uh, to enable us to go um, all over the world to people that can't afford it as well as fulfill our mission to the poor. All right. Um, the only other thing is our online e-mentoring is up. And um, if you want to check it out on our website, shanewillard.org, once a month I'll be in an online classroom teaching um, the things that my rabbi uh, taught me. And so I'd love to be able to download that to you. Okay, we ready to go? Is this a problem? Oh, it won't be. Okay. All right. Get it on. Yeah, all right. No pressure. All right. Well, let's, let's just get started, and they're going to work it out. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8. This is a, um, a series of, of messages called the Beatitudes. It's a series of statements that Jesus made. They were the, uh, it was Jesus' first sermon. The Beatitudes um, just started to uh, amaze me. Uh, part of the reason that the Beatitudes amaze me is this is Jesus' first sermon, and yet the crowd was so big that he had to climb a mountain to get away from them enough to talk. So, so in Jesus' first message, they had to climb a mountain to get far enough away in order to talk to the people. Now, look, I've been preaching for years, and Mike's, Mike's been preaching for years, and you're a fair enough good-looking group of people, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. I mean, now, so what would possess 
a group of people, what would possess a group of people to, to be so enamored by this new rabbi that they would flock from all over the place to see? You might say, yeah, but he was the son of God. They didn't know that. As a matter of fact, because he claimed to be, they ended up killing him anyway. So that, that was not the issue. What was going on here? And here's what it was going on. Here's what was going on. Jesus was the new rabbi with something called smika. Can you say that with me with some gusto? Smika. And so the, being the new rabbi with smika meant he had authority. There was two rabbis with authority in Jesus' day, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. They both died when Jesus was around 18 years old. So when Jesus was 18 years old, they both died. And so the nation was waiting on the new rabbi with smika, with authority. So everybody in Israel was either under Hillel or under Shammai. Jewish historians called Jesus the rabbi with the third way. In other words, he, he had the authority to create another yoke. So rumor had it that this rabbi's yoke was easy and his burden was light. His, burden was e- his yoke was easy and his burden was light. So people would have flocked from all over the place in order to hear his new way of living. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is identifying attributes of kingdom people. He's, he's actually, it's a rabbin, the Beatitudes is a rabbinical commentary on Isaiah 61 and 66. It, it, it's a commentary not on how to be saved in the sense of going to heaven one day, but how to be saved in the sense of being a kingdom person now. How do you do that? I love the Beatitudes. The, the first one is this, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So that, that's, that's the first one. And, um, and it's interesting that like the literal translation of that is blessed are people who are short on wind, which is interesting. So essentially, uh, he says, essentially, he says, um, blessed are people who choose not to be long-winded. Uh, blessed are people who don't like to hear the sound of their own voice. Uh, blessed are people who don't have to be the center of the party. Uh, blessed are people who aren't secretly angry when they're not noticed. Uh, blessed are people who do that. So all of these beatitudes are describing the same type of kingdom person. Now, in the middle of that, he gives us this. It says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones that will see God. Now, I want you to notice something about the structure here. This is written in a form of literature called a chiastic structure. It's very, very familiar in Hebrew writing, okay? Basically, a chiastic structure says the same thing twice and then sandwiches the main point in the middle. So it says the same thing twice and then it sandwiches the main point in the middle. So in this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and blessed are the pure in heart. They're the same people. This is the same exact person. And it's saying exactly the same thing. I want you to notice something. That to Jesus, that righteousness comes from hungering and thirsting after it, never attaining it. That actually when you look at Jesus' writings and Jesus' teachings, those who thought they had attained righteousness were the ones who didn't. It was actually found in a heart that said, no, no, we'll never arrive at righteousness. We're going to constantly pursue it. So, so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart. What is the difference between someone who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness and someone who's pure in heart? Nothing. It's, it's essentially the same thing. And this is a very common literary structure. It's called a chiasm. So, so you, have, you have blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the pure in heart. And the main point of it is to, have, to be a person who is full of mercy, to be a person 
who's full of mercy. Now, now a couple things. I want to unpackage, particularly verse 6. We're going to spend the rest of the night unpackaging verse 6, basically. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. First thing we want to understand is the idea of blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, you understand, in the Hebrew language, there are two words for blessed. The first word is the word baruch. Can you say that with me with some go all blacks gusto? Baruch. All right, let's try it again. And add some, like, Jewish flavor to it. Everybody say, Baruch. Let's try that again. Ready? Baruch. All right? So Baruch is a blessing from God to you or from you to God. So you could say, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a blessing from you to God. Or you could say, God blessed me. And you could use the word Baruch. God Baruched me. He, 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 um, he blessed me. So it's a blessing from God to you. Or it's a blessing from you to God. The other word for blessed is the word ashri. Can you say that one with me? Ashri. Like a little more guttural Jewish. Ready? Ashri. Yeah. So ashri is happiness as a result of right decisions. Both of them are translated blessed in the Bible. So whether it's Baruch or whether it's ashri, it translates to blessed. Let me give you an example. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of sinners, nor seat in the seat of scornful, or, or sit in the seat of mockers. And, and for his delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he, de- does he meditate day and night. The, the word there is not Baruch, the word is Ashri. In other words, happy is someone who chooses to keep the right company. Uh, another scripture says, um, where there's no vision, people perish. But he who chooses to keep the Torah, that man is blessed. The word is not Baruch, the word is Ashri. In other words, happy is someone who chooses to do things God's way. Happy is someone who chooses to do these things. It's not like there's some magical thing that God just all of a sudden blesses people. No, no, wait, that, that, that is true, and we ought to thank God for that, correct? Like, it's true that sometimes God just blesses us. But more often than not, God has set the laws of the universe in motion, and when we keep those things, we are happy as a result of it. Now, in, in, the, in Matthew, in the, in the Hebrew version of Matthew, the word he uses for blessed there is ashri. And for all the Beatitudes. So in other words, he says, happy is someone who is poor in spirit. In other words, happy is someone who chooses not to be long-winded. Happy is someone who chooses not to love to hear the sound of their own voice. Happy is someone who chooses to mourn. Happy is someone who chooses to identify with the suffering of others. On this one, um, happy, and he says, happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This one he says, happy is someone who chooses to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Now, there's, there's two concepts here. There's two concepts here. First, what is righteousness? And second, what is pure in heart? So let's cover the pure in heart one first. Now, to understand pure in heart, yes, I think he's hitting the button. Okay, if you're hitting the button, just, yeah, here we go. Okay, so Tamei, um, t- there's two words, Tamei and Tehor. So can you say those with me? Everybody say Tamei. Everybody say Tehor. All right, so Tameh and Tehor. Everybody's either Tameh or Tehor in this culture. Tameh means unclean, contaminated, or impure. Tehor means clean, sanctified, or pure. So, so here's the basics of Tameh and Tehor. There were 613 commands in Leviticus. 
613 commands, all right? Now, those are what made a person unclean or clean. And when you were unclean, you had to have a sacrifice then to become clean. So what did man do with it? And what was the point? The point was, is that we need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. Something else has to be sacrificed for us. That was the point. What did man do with it? Man made it into a complicated system of laws that told people who were in and who was out. And that was never the point. It was never the point. They made 3,000 extra oral laws to go on top of the 613. And so, so here was the problem. When you broke any of their laws, then you were considered Tame. How did, you become, how did you become clean? You had to have a sacrifice. Where could you get a sacrifice? Conveniently, you could buy it from them. So the harder they made it to be clean, the richer they got. So what they did is they used religious guilt in order to make money. We would never do that, would we? (laughs) So they used religious guilt in order to make money. Jesus shows up and begins to turn the whole thing upside down. He shows up and a prostitute washes his feet with with her hair. He says, oh, your faith has forgiven all your sins. That turned this upside down. There's a paralyzed guy lowered in from the roof, and it says, and Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Well, that turned that upside down. Why? What did they need to be forgiven? No, you got to go to the temple. You got to have a sacrifice. Your priest has to do all this for you. Jesus said, no, I see their heart. I, I, I see their heart. He began to turn their concepts of unclean and clean upside down. He blew apart their idea of who was in and who was out. Matter of fact, one place, he was talking to a group of people who thought they were all in. And he says, hey, listen, at my banqueting table, many will come from the north, the east, the south, and the west. But you who actually think you're in will be the ones shut out. So Jesus seems to indicate that the people at the end of the day who think they're in are actually the ones in the most danger. This is a radical new concept. This is a concept that Jesus is coming in. He's blowing away their ideas of clean and unclean. He's actually making it more about the heart than he is about behavior or status. He comes in and he does this and he begins to publicly defeat this. And ultimately, he publicly defeats it on the cross. You don't understand that the cross was a radical new way to live. It wasn't just about forgiveness. It it was about a radical new way to live because the revelation of God progressively got nicer. It went from not knowing what to do to please him to bringing a sacrifice, one sacrifice per family per year. It went from that to that. Then Jesus shows up and says, no, it's one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. So, So the revelation of God progressively got kinder. It progressively got nicer. And all along the way, there was people who did not want God to be nice. Something about that threatened them. And so when Leviticus was written, there was a group of people who said, no, no, God cannot be this nice. We got to make it harder. And they did. Then Jesus comes along and goes, no, no, it's even easier than that. The writer of Hebrews, makes, he says, didn't you know that all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take your sins away? In other words, he says, didn't you know God didn't need that all along? He simply set it up because you needed your conscience appeased. In other words, you thought you needed it, so God set it up so you would need it. And that made you feel closer to God. But all along, God didn't need it. (laughs) And then then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, "Um, didn't you understand that Jesus died at the culmination of the ages? Like the culmination of the ages. The culmin- Does that sound like something boring and oh, well, no, 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 the culmination of the ages. That sounds like a rock concert, doesn't it? 
Like, where'd you go last weekend? How was the concert? Man, it was the culmination of the ages. It was awesome. We went to the culmination of the ages. Right? Like, that's what it sounds like. That Jesus shows up and he begins to revolutionize their ideas of righteous and unrighteous. What does he do mainly to revolutionize it? This is what he does. He says, your righteousness really has nothing to do with your status or even your behavior. As much as it has to do with what you're hungering and thirsting for in your heart. He begins to turn it upside down. So, so what did it mean to have a sadaka spirit? Listen to this scripture. Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20, it says this. This is Jesus now. He's really messing with people. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, because th- these were the most righteous people on earth. They made all the rules and then kept them. And so he's saying, listen, if you want to attain righteousness that way, if you want to go that route, you can go that route. But here's what I'm telling you. If you choose to go that route, your righteousness has to surpass theirs or you're not going to make it. What's he saying? It's impossible to be righteous that way. There has to be another way. Now, which leads us to a question. What does it mean to develop a righteous spirit? Now, listen, we've been talking all week about establishing the kingdom of God in our lives. And, and this message tonight is the culmination of that. It's the culmination of that. It's, it, it, is the, it is the culmination of that. It is the, it is the life application of what do kingdom people look like. I want to talk to you for the rest of the night about what it means to develop a righteous spirit. A righteous spirit. Now, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness, this is not a word about withdrawing from evil. That's what I was taught. I, I was taught that if you didn't drink, you didn't smoke... You didn't chew tobacco. You didn't dress immodestly. You didn't watch the wrong movies. Um, for women, if you didn't cut your hair, you didn't wear makeup, you didn't wear the wrong kind of jewelries, you didn't want to give men the wrong idea, you didn't want to do any of this stuff, you didn't swear or curse or anything like that. All right, so if you didn't do these things, then you were righteous. Then you were righteous. Of course, we made up what was righteous and unrighteous. In the South, in America, you couldn't wear jewelry, makeup, slacks. You couldn't drink wine. You couldn't do any of that. If you didn't do those things, then you were righteous. But you could hate black people. That was okay. So our concepts of righteousness started to be jaded around things we withdrew from. So if you withdraw from the wrong evils, then you're righteous. This is nothing. This, the word righteous in Hebrew, which we're going to talk about in a second... The word righteous in Hebrew has nothing to do with withdrawing from evil. It has everything to do with something you enter into. It has everything to do with entering into something, largely and namely to make other people's lives better. All through Scripture, there is a connection between righteousness and generosity. Listen, there are 2,106 Scriptures in the Bible 2,106 scriptures that talk about the righteous's responsibility to be generous. That right all through the Bible, righteousness and generosity are connected, and greed and wickedness are connected. All through the Bible. Righteousness, generosity, greed, wickedness. Righteousness, generosity, greed, wickedness. Righteousness, generosity, greed, wickedness. 2,106 scriptures about this. This is even in the language itself. Let me show you the word here. The, the, the top word there, the word for righteousness is sadak. Can you say that with me? Sadak. Come on, stronger. Sadak. 
The word righteousness is sadak. This is the word that would always be translated righteous or righteousness. Remember now, every Hebrew letter is a picture. So every Hebrew word is a comic strip. In the picture Hebrew, the first letter is a fish hook with bait on it. It means what lures you. What, what's the desire of your heart? The, the D is an open door. And, and, and the Q there is the back of someone's head. It means humility. So in the picture Hebrew, the word righteousness is this. The desire of one's heart opens the door to humility. The desire of one's heart opens the door to humility. I want you to notice again. What is the starting point of righteousness? The desire of your heart. It's not your behavior per se. It's that you're hungering and thirsting for something. We're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. So that is the word righteousness. Now, the word generosity is the word sedaka. Sedaka. Everybody say that one with me. Sedaka. Now, so righteousness is the word sedak. Generous is the word sedaka. It's the same word. It's the same word. It means to reveal righteousness. So to them generosity was righteousness revealed. It begins to make sense as to why 2,106 times in Scripture, more than heaven, hell, faith, and prayer combined, the writers of Scripture combine the ideas of righteousness and generous. That, that in order, do you realize that to a rabbi, it is impossible to be righteous and greedy. You cannot do it. It doesn't even fit in the word. Like to say someone is sadak without producing sadaka would be false. You can't say that. One writer said it this way, faith without works is dead. Are, are you really going to depend on dead faith to save you? I mean, come on. So sadak so, so always produces sadaka. That makes sense. Now, let me just show you some scriptures around this that, that really start to make this make sense. Matthew 6, 22, 23 is Jesus. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, you've got to understand Hebrew imagery to understand this. In first century Hebrew culture, you, to say someone had an eye full of light meant they were generous. To say someone had an evil eye, it meant they were stingy. The etymology of the phrase, don't give me the evil eye, means don't be stingy with me. Don't be stingy with me. So Jesus said, if your eye is full of light, in other words, if you're generous, then it'll bring, it'll bring favor to everything you do. If, you're, if your eye is full of darkness, if you're stingy, then it'll bring darkness to everything you do. And then he qualifies it. He says, but if the, if the light that is in you is actually dark, now you've got a real problem. In other words, if your generosity has greedy motives, you're going to have run into a real problem. In the same passage later, he says, where your treasure is, there's your heart, because you can't serve both God and mammon. In, 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 other, words, in other words, if your heart, if your eye is full of light, if in your heart you're hungering and thirsting to have a generous spirit, then, then this will create favor for your whole life. If you're stingy, it won't. And please be sure that your generosity isn't greedy in its motives isn't greedy as motives. Check out this scripture, saying Jesus. He's saying this. He says, be careful, Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. In the Hebrew version of Matthew, what do you think that word is? Sadaka, acts of righteousness, to reveal righteousness. It was, and in this context, he's talking about feeding the poor. 
He says, don't give to the needy. Don't, be, don't give to the needy before men. Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by men. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Once again, sadak, sadaka, generosity. Listen to this scripture. Psalm 37, verse 25 and 26. Psalm 37, verse 25 and 26 says this. I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. All the day long, he deals generously and lends freely and his seed is blessed. What's the connection? The writer of Psalm 37 is saying, listen, I've lived a long time and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And out of all the adjectives he could use to describe a righteous person, he doesn't say a righteous person doesn't drink, smoke, chew, dress immodestly, go to the wrong movie, say the wrong words. He doesn't make it about behavior. What does he make it about? He says, you could tell a righteous person is righteous because he's dealing generously always. And you got to understand, in the language, it just makes sense. He would have said, Sadak people do Sadaka. It just makes sense. Sadak people do Sadaka. Look at the other one Psalm 112, verse 5. A righteous man shows generosity and lends freely, he guides his business with fairness. Once again, in Hebrew, all it would say is this A Sadak person. Shows sadaka. Do you know how to say the righteous, the righteous in Hebrew? The word righteous is sadak. The righteous would be hasadak. So he's saying it has a ring to it. Hasadak shows sadaka. Hasadak shows sadaka. In other words, the righteous are the generous. The righteous are the generous. It's developing a generous spirit. It's developing a generous spirit. Um, how important is this to develop a righteous spirit, a generous spirit? Um, very. I'll go where no man will go. I'm leaving tomorrow anyway. All right? So there's this one scripture, if I could be just totally open and honest with you, which I can't, um, that scares me to death. And if you have a heart beating in your body, it should scare you because it's in red letters. And Jesus is pretty serious. This is what he says. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I didn't know you. Anybody scared yet? Why? Because many sounds like me, right? Sounds like I could be in there, right? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I didn't know you. And they'll say, hold on. No, you, you must be mistaken. Um, we're the guys who cast out devils and we're the guys who prophesied. He said, yeah, but I still don't know you. So these people called many... That's a lot. These people called many not only had cried out, Lord, Lord, but they had operated in a bit of power. Now, here was what scared me. I could not find anything that separated me from them. I couldn't. Had I cried out, Lord, Lord? Yes. Have you cried out, Lord, Lord? Yes. Okay. Well, that fits. Have you ever cast out devils? Yes. I've done it a few times. Have you ever prophesied over someone? Have a word of knowledge, things like that? Yes, so have I. So I and you sound like them. The people, it seems to me that in this passage, Jesus is saying there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out. They're actually surprised that he doesn't know them. And who is he describing there? Pentecostal leaders, people who've thrown out devils, 
people who've prophesied, people who've cried out, Lord, Lord, yet he still didn't know them. That scared me to death. Why? Because I'm them. And 90% of the people I minister to fit this description. It, it was terribly scary. So I went to my seminary professor. He has his uh, PhD in theology, so he should know. So I said, listen, what do we do with this? This was his answer. Shane, that scripture does not apply to you because you're saved. To which I said, look, I, I respect that. But with all due respect, they thought they were saved. These people he's describing, they are totally stunned, dazed, amazed, and confused. That, that, that he doesn't know him. He goes, yeah, but Shane, it doesn't apply to you because you're saved. I said, man, with all due respect, that doesn't cut it. He said, it's going to have to cut it because it's my only answer. I said, well, fair enough. He's just, okay. So, <laughs> and so am I, right? We're just all. So, so for 15 years, I prayed a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, if I'm in that category, please be kind enough to tell me. Like, at least give me a chance here. I don't want to be totally dazed, amazed, stunned, and confused, right? But doesn't the central question seem to be, what does it mean to know God? He says, you don't know me. I don't know you. Yeah, but, yeah, but we did this, we did that. Yeah, but I still don't know you. So the question is, is what does it mean to know God? And is there anywhere in Scripture that God says, this is what it means to know me? And you know what? I was studying something else, and I found it. And then I tried to find another instance of it. And to me, I cannot find it. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying I can't find it. I can't find any other instance in all of Scripture that defines what it means to know God other than this one. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 16. Listen to this. He took care of the poor and the afflicted, so it is well with him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? So God defines knowing him as having a generous spirit towards people who can't possibly do anything to pay back. Doesn't this seem to fit with Jesus' world? Doesn't this seem to fit with Jesus' message? Think about Jesus' message. Who is the only person in Jesus' whole ministry that Jesus actually said went to hell? Who's the only one? The rich man who overlooked the poor man. Like Jesus dealt with all manner of wicked people. The lady caught in the act of adultery. He's like, I don't condemn you. You know, it's going to be all right. There was a lady divorced five times and she was shacked up with the sixth one. He's like, can I get you a drink? You look like you need a drink, right? He, th there, was a, there was a tax collector in a tree. And, and the tax collector in the tree gets so moved with Jesus' compassion. He says, look, Lord, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. Jesus said, that's it. Salvation's come to you. That, that's it. That, that he's got it. He, he's got it. Who is the only person in Jesus' whole ministry that Jesus said God's going to kill you? It's the only one. It said there was a guy that um, God blessed all the works of his hand. And he had all this extra food. And Jesus said, hey, there's a lot of hungry people outside. What are you going to do with your extra food? And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns to store it up for myself so that my soul can have peace. And I'll know I'll always have food. Jesus said, that's it. God's going to kill you. God's going to kill you. It just seems to fit his whole modus operandi. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Is this not what it means to know me? Check, check out this scripture. Isaiah 1, 15 through 18. It says this. 
When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Now listen, this is God having a rant. Now what do you think this rant would be about? Idolatry? Homosexuality? Something really bad like that. Well, watch what it is. Watch what it is. Seek, it says, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphan. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. What caused the move in God's heart from you wicked people to those your, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow? What caused it? Generosity. It was all a generous spirit. There's this one time, there's this guy. His name's John the Baptist. He's a Baptist. And you guys know Baptists, like, they just don't have people skills. And I can say that because I was raised Baptist. Okay, so, um, so anyway, John the Baptist is out in the like he had no people skills. You read the stories about him and you go, how did this guy build a ministry? This guy did things like eat bugs, <laughs> don't bathe, things like this. And so he has this rant in Luke chapter 3. Um, so the next scripture, he, he says in Luke chapter 3, um, verse uh, um, 7, somewhere around in there. And give me some, I, I think I've got it memorized, but give me some leeway here. He says, and John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Is that a way to build a church? <laughs> these are people coming out to be baptized by him, and he greets them with this, you basket of snakes, you fatherless people. There's a word for that. It starts with a B. You don't want to call people that, right? This is not really... Uh, nice. Out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It gets worse. Watch this. The axe is already fallen to the root of your trees, and every one of you that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. This guy's not a Baptist. He's a Pentecostal on speed. <laughs> it's like fire, all of you. You fatherless basket of snakes. Every one of you, you're on your way into fire. Now, what do you think that whole rant was about? You would think, once again, idolatry, sexual immorality, the big one, homosexuality. <laughs> you would think it would be something huge like that. But what was huge to them? The crowd says, um, what do you want us to do then? And what's his answer? That whole rant, this was his answer. Let the man with two tunics share with the one who has none. And let the man with food feed those who don't have food. It was all generosity. This seems to be true all the way through the Bible. Um, there's this one time in a place called Sodom and Gomorrah where um, I, I don't have the scripture written down. You just have to trust me. It's there. It just come to my mind. It's Ezekiel uh, 16. It says, for the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. For the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. Now, what do you think the sins of Sodom would be? Sodomy. Like we named it after the place. I mean, listen, when your name becomes a verb, it's a bad day, right? You don't want that, right? 
If you walk out of here tonight and go, man, he Shane Willarded me. I don't even know what that means. That's bad. That's bad. <laughs> you don't want your name to become a verb. It says, for the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. You would think the sin would be homosexuality. But you know it didn't even make the list. This is what it said. For the sins of Sodom, I destroyed Sodom. And her sins were pride, apathy, laziness, gluttony, and overlooking poor people. It's greed, selfishness, thinking you're better than other people, eating more than you have to when someone else is starving. It was, it was refusing to be a kingdom person to bring the kingdom to this world. It, it was that. Um, check out this scripture, Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, let me, let me set this up. Matthew 25, this is Jesus' last sermon. It's his last words. Right after this, he gets arrested. Now, when someone gives you his last words, very important to listen to what they're saying. And Jesus is saying, let me if I can set it up. He's saying, at the end of the age, when I'm judging the whole world, here's how I'm going to judge them. Pay attention because I'm the one doing it. Now, now, watch this scripture. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations shall be gathered before him and he shall separate them from one another as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And indeed, he shall set the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Listen, when you're standing in front of Jesus one day, you want to be on his right. So move to your left, okay? (laughs) Then the king shall say to those on his right, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he tells them why. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. And I was in prison, you came to me. Now look, look at the next verse. Look at the wording. Then the righteous. Now, 2,106 scriptures talk about righteous people have a generous spirit. So you could easily say, then the ha sadak. Then the ha sadak. The people doing tzedakah, the the people feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and this kind of stuff. Then the righteous shall answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will answer him saying, When did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Here's the last line of that sermon. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So in Matthew 25, his criteria of judgment was Sadaka. So let me ask you a question. If you had to face Jesus today, would you be on the right or would you be on the left? Uh, I'll ask another way. Um, he took care of the poor and the afflicted. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Do you know him? Do you know him? How important is it to develop a righteous spirit, a sadaka, 
Spirit. L- listen to this. This is from Matthew. This is Jesus. I love this. He says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites in the synagogues do on the street to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving is in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So important. He's talking about even generosity can sometimes have a bad heart. So he says, you don't want your light to be darkness. He said, here's how you can make sure your light's not darkness. When you give to the needy, do it privately. Don't do so as one who sounds the trumpet. This is such cool imagery. See, sounding the trumpet was something that would happen. Um, Every weekend in their synagogues, they took an offering. But every day on the street of the synagogue, they they had offering baskets available for the poor. And they would have them bolted down, okay? And, and, And the offering baskets, had the opening to it was very broad at the top and very narrow at the bottom. Why? So you couldn't get your hand in there to steal it right? So money only went one way. You with me? So, but because it was broad at the top and narrow at the bottom, it had the shape of a trumpet. So sometimes people would come by with their alms to the poor. They would take their coin, put their hand all the way down in there and quietly drop it in. But others would come by and they would throw their coins in and the noise would reverberate down the street and people would look so that they would know that they had given to the poor. And they called that practice sounding the trumpet sounding the trumpet. So Jesus says, um, when you give to the poor, don't do so as people who sound the trumpets. Every day, they had a group of men, they had a group of men who were responsible for collecting it. They were called, listen to the words, they were called the gabe, that means to collect, the gabe sadika. Gabe sadika, it meant the collectors of righteousness. The collectors of righteousness. So when people gave alms to the poor, what was it called? Righteousness. Sadaka. The collectors of righteousness. The word sadika is where we get the word deacon from. The sadika. The deacons were originally people who were supposed to collect alms and make sure that the strangers, orphans, and widows got fed that day. Got fed that day. Jesus says, when you give... When you give your righteousness, when you do your acts of righteousness, don't do so as one who sounds the trumpet. Don't do so as one who sounds the trumpet. Now, let me stop right here and give you some practical advice. The way they gave to the poor was through reputable organizations where they knew it was going to help people. All right? So they had men in charge of distributing it. They were not against, listen, if you see a beggar out here or a homeless person, they were not against you buying them a meal or giving them money as the Lord led. But the primary place that you would give your, your, your offerings to the poor are through reputable organizations where you know that something good's going to happen from it. That you know something good's going to happen from it. Like, there's so many of them. If you don't know of any, there's plenty. There's plenty. Like, I, I just learned about one. There's this, there's this group in Australia, and the primary cause of blindness in the third world is dirty water. And they can fix that because it causes cataracts. So there's this guy named Fred Hollows, and he's going into places, and he's making blind people see for 30 bucks. It's like, what? So you mean I could go to Hog's Breath tonight and spend $35 on a steak, or I could take that same 35 bucks and I could give sight to the blind? Are you kidding me? Now, if you want to go to hog's breath, go to hog's breath. But don't do so at the expense of taking care of the less fortunate. See, don't feel guilty if you go to hog's breath. 
Just don't use money that's meant, that God meant to bless other people to do that. It's, it's, it's reputable things. This church is a church of generosity. It's a church that does things all over Indonesia and Malaysia. They, they have a, a Ugandan orphanage. If you don't have anywhere to give your poor offering, see these guys. They're doing the job. They're doing the deal. I'm, sell, I'm telling you, it's the Gabay Siddiqua. It's the acts of righteousness. Don't do so as one who sounds the trumpet. But may we develop a Siddiqua spirit. See, this life of the cross, this kingdom life, was all about making others' lives better. If you want the kingdom to be established in your life, you have to make an internal heart commitment. Not perfect. This is not about being perfect. It's not about making a mistake. It's not even about making a thousand mistakes. It's about having a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Hungers and thirsts to make other people's lives better. Now to fully understand this, we have to understand a Hebrew concept. That Hebrew concept is called zakut. Zakut. Let me read you a definition of zakut. This was a common word in their language. It says this, Zakut is kind and generous acts that God notices we do that are not done out of obligation or a result of a command, but out of free will in order to show the love of God to someone else. Let me read it again, because there's a lot of people taking notes, and that's a lot. Zakut is kind and generous acts that God notices we do that are not done out of obligation or of a result of a command, but out of free will in order to show the love of God to someone else. The rabbis taught that there was a way to know God even if you've never seen a Torah. And that way was through Zakut. Where did they get that from? Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen. 16. He took care of the poor and the afflicted. That's what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. So what they believed is that if someone was practicing Zakut, they actually knew God. And God who saw their heart would be determined to reveal himself to them. In the New Testament, can you think of anyone who was counted righteous by God simply on their generosity to the poor? Of course you can. I can think of two. Cornelius. Zacchaeus was the other one. Zacchaeus gets so moved with the compassion of Jesus. What does he do? Look, Lord, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. Jesus said, that's it. He gets it. Salvation's come to his house. He understands what we're talking about now. He understands the kingdom. There was a guy named Cornelius. You can read his story in Acts 10. We don't have time to do that right now. There was a guy in Acts 10 named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. Now, let me tell you what that meant. If you were a Roman centurion, who had to be Lord to you? Caesar. Cornelius had other gods as well. And if you guys know the story, he has this dream where Peter comes to him in his dream. He doesn't know who Peter is. He just has this dream that Peter comes to him. And and so one day, Peter actually shows up, knocks on his door. And Cornelius opens the door, and Peter's there. And what you guys know the story. What does, Peter, what does Cornelius do? He bows down and worships Peter. Peter has to correct him. No, man, get up. I'm just a man. Don't do that. Get up. So here's a guy who had proclaimed Caesar as Lord, and he didn't know it wasn't right to add Peter to his list of gods. Would you call him saved? Is he saved in any systematic theology book in the world? No way. No way. But he asked Peter, Peter, why are you here? Peter says, because God chose you to pastor the first church. The first Gentile church, Cornelius, congratulations, it's going to be yours. People are going, well, I mean, would you want him to be your pastor? 
He just got up off the floor bowing to another man. Cornelius asked what you're asking. Why me? And this is what Peter says. Because God has counted you righteous. Because your generosity to the poor has went up as a remembrance to him. In other words, Cornelius showed a sadaka spirit. And God was faithful to draw Cornelius to himself. Why? Because that's what it means to know him. That's what it means to know him. So important, Zakut. Let me, let me show you this one more scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a famous offering scripture that people use all the time. But I want you to see something maybe a little different in it. 2 Corinthians 9 and following. It says this. But I say this. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one, as he purposes in his heart, let him give, not of grief, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that in everything, always having self-sufficiency. In other words, God wants to take your generosity and make it to where you don't lack anything. Self-sufficiency. Now watch this. That you may abound to every good work. In other words, he wants to take your generosity, make you abound to self-sufficiency so that more sadaka can take place. As more sadaka takes place, there's more self-sufficiency, which abounds to more sadaka, which brings more sadaka around, which brings more self-sufficiency around, which brings more sadaka around. It's an endless cycle. Watch the next verse. As, this is New Testament, y'all. As it is written, he scattered, he has given to the poor. Therefore, his righteousness remains forever. He scattered, he gave to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the eater, may he supply and multiply your seed and thereby increase the fruits of your righteousness. Do you see where he's saying? He's saying when you give generously, it's called righteousness. And there's a fruit of righteousness called tzedakah. May God multiply your seed so that the fruits of righteousness be increased. Listen to the last verse. That you being enriched in everything to all generosity. For you being enriched in everything to all generosity which works out thanksgiving to, uh, through us, to God through us. In other words, does God appreciate it when you say thank you to him? Yes. Does he appreciate it more when you show you're thankful by making other people's lives better? It's a heavier matter. Uh, there's one scripture, I didn't have it written down, it's just coming to my head now, there's so many of them. There's 2,106 to choose from. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Everybody knows John 3, 16. 1 John 3.16 says this. Give me some leeway to paraphrase this. He says, For let us not love in word only, but in word and in deed. Let us not love in word only, but in word and in deed. For if any of you have material gain, let him share with those who have material need. For it is in this generosity that we can know we belong to God. My question is this tonight. Do you want the kingdom to be established in your life? And if you do, let me ask you a couple of questions. One, do you know him? Do you have a sadaka spirit? Number two, if you face Jesus today, would you be on the right or the left? Can you know that you're a part of this idea called the kingdom? Let me give you a summary statement. Here's a summary statement of Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Here's the Shane Willard exegesis of it. Here we go. The happiest people set their passions on meeting the needs of others. When someone lives to be generous to others, he's living for zakut. To show God's heart to restore all things back to his best. In that, God will determine that he shall be filled in his stomach as well as his spirit. I'll read it again. The happiest people set their passions on meeting the needs of others. When someone lives to be generous to others, he's living for zakut. To show God's heart to restore things back to his best. In that, God will determine that he shall be filled in his stomach and in his heart, in his spirit. Do you know that in, in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. The word filled there is the word to fill your stomach. So in other words, Jesus is saying, happy is someone who chooses to meet the needs of the down and outer. Happy is someone who chooses to meet the needs of the poor and the afflicted. Happy is someone who chooses to enter into a righteous tzedakah spirit. Happy is someone who chooses to do that. And when they do that, they'll never have to worry about food in their own stomach ever, ever, ever. Like it's kingdom people. It's kingdom people. So let's apply this with a few questions. Let me just ask you a few questions. It's not my place to tell you where you are. It's my place to ask. Number one, are you generous? Are you generous? I, I don't know if you are. Only you know if you are. Are you generous? Is your eye full of light? Um, is there any place in your life right now that you've turned your back on the needs of others? Is there any place in your life right now that you told yourself, it's not my problem, it is your problem? Who else is going to handle it? The body of Christ is the hope of the whole world. It is our problem. It is our problem. N number two, how have we defined righteousness that needs to change? Have you been guilty of defining righteousness by not doing certain things and thereby fooling yourself into thinking I'm a righteous person when in actuality, righteousness is defined by a heart condition that hungers and thirsts to make other people's lives better? I, I would say it this way. Let me ask it a better way. Um, you're saved, right? You're saved? Now what? Now what? What are you going to do with that? You're on your way to heaven? Well, good. You've got 50 more years to live. What are you going to do? You got 30 more years to live. What are you going to do? I I'm saved. Now what? Whose life are you going to make better? Where are you going to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the whole world? I I'm standing up here. Now, please hear my heart. I have left my guts on this stage tonight trying to communicate this. Please understand my heart. I'm, I, I come to you with the most humblest of spirit right now. That we're all in a journey. We'll never arrive at this. There's no, there's no one righteous. No, not one. Why? Because we will never arrive at this. It's a constant daily thing, a choice to say, I, I will, I will hunger and thirst to make other people's lives better. It's about entering into something. How can you believe God for seed? The, the Bible says God provides seed to the sower. Listen to me. God provides seed to the sower, not to the hoarder. He is duty bound to provide seed for you. He is not duty-bound to provide fruit. He's only duty-bound to provide seed, and how you sow your seed determines your fruit. How can you believe God for seed? I'm telling you, whether it's your household or your church or your organization or whatever, if you begin to live by your seed instead of, instead of by your fruit, it, the fruit will take care of itself. Number four, where can you practice zakut today? Is there anybody in your life right now that you could make their life better even tonight? Maybe there's, this takes the form of all kinds of things, not just money. 
There are people, there are hungry people in this world that need to be fed. There are naked people in this world that need to be clothed. There are, there are, there are people who are in desperate, desperate need. And sometimes money can fix that problem. There are blind people that $30 can help them see. There, there are, but you know what? There might be a single mom in here. And she's got four children and she's about to lose her sanity. And maybe Zakut for her is you calling and saying, you know what? This Saturday, I'm going to watch your kids for four or five hours. And you don't have to do anything. You can go out, see a movie, go shopping. You can be on your own. You can, sim- you can go sit at the banks of Hawks Bay and look over towards the mountain and sit on the water and just clear, your, clear yourself, reset your batteries. And you would be practicing Zakut because there's nothing she could ever do to pay you back. That's Zakut. That's making other people's lives better. It is your problem. What else are you going to do? Watch Super 14? I mean, what else are we going to do? Watch the next rerun of CSI? Come on, what else are we going to do? What are we going to give our life to? Are we going to give our life to striving not to do certain things so we're righteous? Or are we going to give our life to hunger and thirst to make other people's lives better? Listen to me. The next generation of church will be, will be defined by churches that live Zakut. It'll be defined, listen, not my generation, but the generation after me, they do not care what you believe. Your doctrine is useless to them. They want to see a kingdom of God. They want to see a body of Christ that's actually meeting needs. My dad's generation, they were a mind generation. Teach me doctrine. Teach me truth. Teach me this stuff. The next generation after me, they'll, that'll be important, but it won't be the most important thing. They want to know, where does your doctrine feed the mouths of hungry people? Where does your doctrine make other people's lives better? Does it work? I bless you tonight to know that you can be a church of the kingdom. You can be. And it comes down to each individual person choosing to practice Sukkot. I bless you tonight to know that the fate of New Zealand is not found in people in Wellington. The fate of New Zealand is found in the individual families represented here today who will make a choice to live by Sukkot. And it will go well with you. For this is what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God. May we be kingdom people. Let's pray together. And um, I will say one more thing to you. I've taught you a lot, hey? Thursday, Friday, today. I actually need to go away for about a year and read some books so I can have something new to say. (laughs) But listen to me. If you learned your brain full of stuff tonight and through the week, But yet by Wednesday, it hasn't changed your life. I have done nothing. It does nothing. So what if you know stuff? I want to know what are we going to do about it. One scripture says, let us not be hearers of the word, but let's pray together. First question I want you to ask yourself between you and God. Lord, where can I practice Sukkot tonight, this week? Where do we need to sit down and make a commitment to constantly do it on a regular basis? Where do we need to make this a lifestyle of giving stuff up so that other people's lives can be better?